Welcome back to the program. Well, there are many social, political, and psychological reasons for our current state of political gridlock and polarization. Money is certainly at the core. The next presidential election could cost well over one and a quarter billion dollars. It costs 10 million at least to become a U.S. senator, and house races are costing millions. We talk about the corrosive effect of money in politics, and Citizens United certainly reinforced that. But both sides are raising and spending the money with equal alacrity, and the public shows no signs of being fed up enough to do anything about it. If this continues, what does it really mean for democracy as we knew it? And what kind of government will it give us? And will there ever come a tipping point for an angry and disaffected public? We're going to talk about all of this today with my guest, Timothy Kuhner. He's an associate professor at Georgia State University College of Law. And it is my pleasure to welcome him here to talk about capitalism versus democracy, money in politics, and the free market constitution. Timothy Kuhner, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Jeff. It's great to have you here. One of the things about money in politics is it is something, it's a little like the weather, I suppose, in some respects. It's something everybody talks about. But nobody does a whole lot about and one wonders if it's because we really don't understand the nature of the corrosive effect that it's having as opposed to just something we talk about i think that's fair it's the effects of money in politics are so vast and they occur in so many different areas of society from farm policy to trade policy to climate change policy to workers rights uh civil rights, uh, pharmaceuticals, and the ability of, of the government to regulate those for consumer safety. Um, it, it occurs on all fronts. Um, the power of donors and spenders to influence the political platforms of our parties, to influence the debates and really make the outcome of debates a foregone conclusion because all of the senators and congressmen are trying to please their uh, campaign funders, uh, this ability to make the debates kind of a foregone conclusion and to make politics feel like an empty and cynical exercise. Uh, that all occurs in so many different places, in so many different times, that I believe that the impact of money in politics just starts to feel like the world as we know it, as opposed to a concrete problem that we need to respond to. And that's really the issue, is recognizing that the dysfunctional cynical and rather sad and frustrating world uh, that we know, recognizing that that world is actually not necessary uh, and that we don't have to live with it. And it's the, the consequence of rather concrete policy choices made mostly by the Supreme Court, actually. Of course, to begin to turn that clock back, to begin to make these changes it's going to take a, a degree of public engagement that we really haven't seen on, on a really grand scale. That's absolutely right, because the responses to money in politics that require less than massive public engagement are not sufficient. And so when you see Congress tinkering around the edges saying, oh, maybe we'll try to get a little more disclosure of where political money is coming from or Maybe we'll try to reform the tax code a bit so that dark money groups and shadow money and super PAC money is, uh, has to jump through some more hoops prior to dominating the electoral discourse. These sorts of reforms that tinker around the edges are good ideas, but they're insufficient to respond to the depth and the breadth 
of the problem. And so when we're talking about what would be an enduring reform, we're talking about a constitutional amendment, and that requires everyday people uh, and the great majority of people really in this country to recognize that their rights and their policy preferences are going to be ineffective unless they're able to bring some integrity to democracy, and that requires going over the heads of Supreme Court justices. Talk a little bit about the historical context, because certainly while the sums of money are so much greater and the degree to which it is pervasive, as you just detailed, is certainly more extensive than it's ever been, the influence of people with money, the influence of of donors, the influence of, of people of import has certainly been with us throughout the history of the republic. What's so fundamentally different today? It's right to say that this is not a new problem in essence. And so you can look back to uh, the early decades of this country. Um, In fact, up until the 1840s or 1850s even, when property restrictions on the vote endured. And so certainly at the time of the founding of this country and for another solid 50 years or so, it was extremely common for even white males to not have the right to vote because under many state laws, only white males with a, with a sufficient amount of property were given the vote. And so and this is one of the reasons Andrew Jackson's presidency is so interesting and his legacy is so important because Jacksonian democracy expanded suffrage to all white males. And of, and of course, that wasn't uh, nearly enough. That was barely a beginning point because then you had to deal with slavery and the absence of due process and equal protection and the fact that black people couldn't vote up until 1870, the fact that women couldn't vote up until 1920, uh, that poll taxes endured up until the 24th Amendment in 1964, uh, and the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act uh, in in the following year. And um, so the obstacles to full citizen participation are nothing new, and certainly people with property had tremendous advantages throughout the history of American democracy. Now, what's different about it today is that this state of affairs where people with capital, uh, corporations included, have much more political influence than ordinary citizens, we came to a sort of confrontation with this in the 1970s when after the Voting Rights Act had been passed and was being enforced finally uh, up into the early 70s, there was a sense that, okay, you know, we've gotten to full suffrage without obstacles, and now can we finally deal with the elephant in the room, which is the conversion belt between economic power and political power? Can we finally deal with that? And what's unique, right, is what's important about that moment is the Congress spoke, and the people spoke. And in the 1970s, the first comprehensive package of campaign finance reform was passed. And so what's different, and and then many states, of course, also followed suit before and after. So what's different about our political moment is that we've actually confronted the problem of wealth in politics, but the Supreme Court has reversed those efforts and said it's unconstitutional to care about political equality in the financing of elections. And so that's, that's the really singular thing about our present day is that we've recognized the problem, we've acted on it, and the Supreme Court keeps throwing it back 
in, in the face of the public, in the face of state legislatures, and in the face of even the Congress. And part of the argument, the, the core argument, I suppose, for the courts has been this notion of money as political speech. Talk a little bit about that. Sure. The, the Supreme Court's ability to throw all of these reforms back in the public's face, that wouldn't be possible without a series of justifications for why, in their view, campaign finance reform is unconstitutional as a violation of the First Amendment free speech clause which just says Congress shall make no law bridging the freedom of speech. So the question is, what is speech? And in 1976, in the Buckley v. Vallejo case, the Supreme Court, the Burger Court, wrote that uh, money was speech, essentially, and that democracy should be understood as a market, and that this effort by the Congress to limit expenditures was an unconstitutional violation of free speech because it restricted this market for for speech, by which they meant really a financial market for political spending. And um, so that was was 1976, and these um, sorts of justifications only continued up until uh, even the present day. And so in 1978, the Supreme Court ruled in Bilotti that corporations had the right to spend on referendum or referenda questions, right, questions submitted to the citizens of states. Uh, to spend in those referenda processes in order to influence the outcome. And that case, well, it didn't say explicitly that corporations were citizens. It set the stage for Citizens United, the case in 2010, uh, written by Justice Kennedy for the majority, that did say that corporations really are citizens for purposes of political spending. And you can add to that a number of curious ideological judgments that the Supreme Court has thrown out as um, not, not thrown out as in discarded, but adopted and, and, and given to us in their opinions. Another one being that political equality is an unconstitutional rationale. Democratic integrity is an unconstitutional rationale. Uh, protecting the time of elected office holders so that they can pay attention to their geographic constituents and not just their funders, that that too is an unconstitutional reason for limiting political expenditures. That's where the court has taken us, through a series of, frankly, rather bizarre ideological judgments that I detail in the book. And the fact that it is not, you know, we tend to think of this as Citizens United as being a singular example, because that's the most famous case. But because, as you say, this is a series of rulings going back to to Buckley v. Vallejo, the precedent is firmly established as far as the court's concerned, and it's it's perhaps naive to think that that any future court is going to dramatically change this in any fundamental way. That's uh, I agree with that uh, with just a small caveat, which is a, a future court could, uh, if if Democratic presidents were to appoint new justices, which might take a while, um, and the balance were to shift from the Roberts sort of ideology back to maybe a more balanced Rehnquist court sort of ideology, they could later overrule Citizens United in the latest. Case McCutcheon, just as the Roberts Court overruled McConnell and Austin, which were two cases that spoke about uh, pretty poetically about the dangers of corporate political power. So I do think there could be future reversals, but I agree with you that what the court has done at this stage is so comprehensive and so well established that you know the best thing we could hope for is now a sort of a minor pendulum swing. And that's not a satisfactory solution to a problem that's so structural and so deep-seated. 
given how structural and deep-seated, are there solutions that we should be looking at with respect to transparency, with respect to the way money is used in politics? Are there solutions we should be looking at that coexist with this series of rulings that the court has made that would be worst case interim steps at best case, the best we can hope for? Sure. There's a variety of legislative proposals, uh, some of them at the federal level, some of them at in the states, to increase disclosure, to tinker with the tax code, uh, to again, to diminish the power of super PACs or the dark money groups, which operate supposedly as uh, charitable sorts of organizations. Um, and this is one of the main dilemmas for, for your listeners and for the American public as a whole, which is, do you want to attempt to sort of tinker with the problem, or do you want to take a step back and say, this is an important moment historically, it's time to step away from this constant back and forth, which results in ineffective regulations on, on political finance overall? Is it time to step away from those and really recognize the depth of the problem and work towards a constitutional amendment? Uh, and amendments, although they're few and far between, there have been 27 of them, and they do uh, tend to mark the difference between stages of radical injustice and a, conf- a social countrywide confrontation with that radical injustice leading to a new constitutional understanding of what our republic is all about. And I think money in politics absolutely qualifies as that kind of issue that requires that kind of stepping back, soul-searching, and radical social change. What does that constitutional amendment look like to you? It's, so there's a number of proposed amendments, and you can take it if you Google constitutional amendment, money in politics, you'll find a variety of proposals. Uh, I think perhaps the leading one today is Tom Udall's uh, out of Senator out of New Mexico. And, uh, but the components across the amendments are, uh, there's a bunch of common components, right? And one of them is to say that uh, just to restore the constitutional power or to make explicit the constitutional power to regulate electoral finance. And so the, they can say there's language such as uh, the Congress shall have the power to regulate political contributions where donors give directly to uh, candidates, uh, officeholders, and parties. Congress shall also have the power to regulate political expenditures where people and corporations spend uh, in, a, in a so-called independent fashion, right, independently from what officeholders or parties might want. Um, there's also the question of corporate political citizenship uh, more broadly or corporate political citizenship more specifically just as regards political spending. Um, there's the question of public financing of elections. Uh, one of the Two of the main Supreme Court cases that have been most troubling in this regard overrule uh, the sorts of campaign finance uh, mechanisms that give power to the general public over donors and spenders. And so there's the, uh, the Bennett case and the Davis case, uh, 2008 and 2011, that reverse efforts by the U.S. Congress as well as the state of Arizona to make campaigns accountable to the general public and not just big donors and uh, so some degree of public financing could be also an important part of this constitutional amendment. But what I want to emphasize to your listeners is that the constitutional amendment is a massive conversation that everyone needs to be involved in. 
And the best way to be involved in that is to understand the depth of the problem, to wrestle with the Supreme Court and what it has said, and on the basis of that kind of knowledge, to make uh, an informed decision and take a stand. Given how big the problem is, and given the, the parity between the parties, that this is one of those odd things and that it's almost a nonpartisan situation. You look at some of the huge donors and, and they give to both parties. The amount of money that's being consumed by both political parties right. is enormous. Can this be something that literally collapses under its own weight? If you talk to people in political life, one of the things they will tell you in, in unscripted moments is their frustration with having to spend as much time as they do raising money. Absolutely. Uh, there are reports from interviews that suggest that office holders on both sides of the aisle are fed up with the whole system of having to cater to donors and spenders and to be always looking over their shoulders for the next super PAC that's going to attack them or the next super PAC that's going to support them. And this kind of constant attention to the money game takes them away from what a lot of them, at least perhaps not all of them, but I think a lot of representatives wanted to do by getting into politics in the first place, which is to be in touch with constituents, to consider public policy issues in good faith, to deliberate on the major questions of the day, and to be able to do all of that in good faith instead of being immersed in this strategic game about how, what views do I need to publicize in order to attract more money? Uh, what views do I need to steer clear of in order to prevent my donors and spenders from fleeing to the other party or my opponent? And so it, I, I don't think this is a situation with that, that's really best characterized by a ton of bad apples. I think this is a situation characterized by the rules of the game being inappropriate to the kinds of results we want to get. And people are just responding to the incentives that they have in front of them, which is they need to raise a lot of money. And corporate executives also come out against the money game and say, we're tired of feeling extorted by these cash-hungry candidates and office holders and parties. We feel that if we don't contribute to their, to their PACs and to their election campaigns, they may very well pursue policies and laws that are against our interests. And clearly, you don't want the leaders of the economy thinking that way. You don't want our economic leaders thinking that if they don't play the political game, they're going to fall behind in economic competition. That results in, in a corrupting and inefficient force within capitalism. That's also part of the problem that the country's facing. Given then the frustration that office holders feel about this, given the, the increasing frustration among corporate executives about having to give this money, Given that we, there's a system that nobody really likes, what's keeping it going? The Supreme Court. The Supreme Court and, wow, uh, a cadre of money and politics advocates that have sprung up to help lobby the court by bringing all of these cases and laying out all the arguments that the court ends up adopting. Um, but those are very few people. There's really only a few committed plutocrats really out there who are saying, no, I really want to keep spending my tens of millions of dollars. And so you get, you know, your Sheldon Adelson's and your Foster Frices and your Koch brothers, and you get lawyers like Jim Bopp, uh, and you get some academics like uh, John Samples and Brad Smith, um, and to a lesser extent, Martin Reddish, who I think is a really thoughtful guy, but whose view of the First Amendment leads to and supports plutocracy. And uh, you get these folks kind of 
lobbying the court and, and doing what good academics and good lawyers are supposed to do, honestly. It's just that their views empower the court and give the court something to draw on as it opposes the vast majority of office holders, the overwhelming majority of citizens, the overwhelming majority of state legislatures, and strikes down all of these reforms that we so badly need. So it's really the Supreme Court, ultimately, that is keeping this crazy system in place. If the system continues as it is at its current pace, what do you see as the the ultimate consequence? The ultimate consequence, it's actually hard to be too dramatic on this score because the ultimate consequence is the ongoing transformation of our political system from government by the people, of the people, for the people, to government of the spenders, by the donors, for the wealthy. And that sort of plutocratic model, uh, that sort of consumer sovereignty instead of popular sovereignty is what we're moving towards and maybe what we already have, to be honest. Uh, It's often hard, right, in, in the present moment to see it as we will impossible, really, to see it as we will in the future, right? Looking back and saying, wow, if we had only noticed the import of that moment and had taken a larger stand to prevent it from continuing. So uh, rather specifically, you're going to see the growing disenfranchisement of the ordinary people, whoever's not a millionaire or a billionaire. You're going to see the growing commercialization of politics. You're going to see political activity characterized by investing and spending Um, hedging your bets, supporting both parties, trying to achieve uh, political results that favor your business interests. You're going to see rising political and economic inequality. And uh, rising economic inequality that we're reading about in Thomas Piketty's work, this really famous book already, uh, Capital in the 21st Century, um, also detailed by many other economists, this rising political, this rising economic inequality depends on the political inequality that leads to laws that don't regulate markets effectively. And so you get crises, you get uh, scandals in markets because influential actors within markets have co-opted the government and the government is powerless to do what needs to be done to make capitalism work for most people. So the future is incredibly bleak if we continue down this road. And that's why I think it's, it's really a great time to read McCutcheon, to read Citizens United, to read Buckley v. Vallejo, uh, to consider whether this is what we want our country to be about, and if not, to do something. Is part of the problem, the, the, the irony sort of built into the system, is that the nature of the game right now is such that it does create this kind of disenfranchisement that you've been talking about, and the kind of gridlock that we're seeing. And the net result of that is to cause people to be further and further disengaged from the system, the very thing that will prevent the system from changing. That's right. It's a vicious cycle. And public opinion polls show growing public frustration, uh, lesser and lesser approval of the Congress. In fact, one of the opinion polls I saw actually reflected such low approval of Congress that you could conclude that actually communism was more popular than the Congress among the general public. (laughs) And certainly, I'm not advocating for communism, but I thought it was interesting that they got to a point that uh, (laughs) something so 
foreign to the U.S. political tradition would become more popular than our own elected representatives. But yeah, it's it's getting really bad, and you're going to see declining rates of voter participation, and democracy is going to become emptier and emptier and less and less sustainable. Tim Kuhner, the book is Capitalism versus Democracy, Money and Politics and the Free Market Constitution. Tim, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. Thank you, Jeff. Uh, I enjoyed it. Thank you. We'll take a break. I'll be right back. 